Welcome, welcome to the Christian Talk Show. This is Minister Jermaine Woodall. And today we got a very special guest that we're going to interview. Uh, Pastor Cesar Vargas, uh, he'll be coming on momentarily. I know all the listeners love to hear his voice. Uh, he's out volunteering this morning. But let's talk about what we got going on today. Today we have Brother Linwood Jackson. Brother Linwood, you out there, Brother Linwood? For sure, for sure. All right, all right, Brother Linwood. We appreciate you joining us today on this beautiful Friday, this God-given Friday. And my brother, I know your story is going to talk to this audience. I know your story is going to do something amazing today to this audience. Brother Linwood. So Brother Linwood has a has a few tasks or items that he's doing. He's giving himself uh, to the Lord, and he has a great message. Um, before we get into uh, Brother Linwood's story, we're going to go ahead and have a have a, op- a quick opening prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for putting for putting this together. Thank you for this audience. Thank you for Brother Linwood. Jackson and giving him strength and giving us opportunity to hear a testimony, hear the work that you're doing in this young man's life. We thank you because we know that the listeners, including myself and others, will be touched by your glory. Continue to bless this audience, bless Brother Linwood, and continue to bless everyone that hears this interview. These and all things we ask for in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. All right, Brother Linwood. So, you know, when we when we interview folks, you know, we have a long laundry list of items, but my, my brother, you're so special and unique. I figure, you know, one of the, the best things to do is just start off with, you know, just just when you introduce yourself to the audience and tell them, tell them like, you know, kind of what, what you're doing for God. Yeah, definitely. I am Linwood Jackson Jr., a author and a poet, mainly on the philosophy within the Bible. And that that, you know, a little bit different because the philosophy within the Bible, I'm just giving Bible as it is and as it should be according to the language and the context that is within it. I came to care for this only due to the fact of me needing a personal definition of love which is you know something i you know despite the the affection you get from parents or or from friends or from others there's a difference between the romanticized and the self-placement definition of love that we're trained and also the sort of definition of love that we acquire from the philosophy within religion to where the love is then transferred to our own self through our acts and our deeds in our, in our, our decency to go through specific rites and honor specific theories of whatever religion we would honor. The Bible in a sense steps away from this and transitions and turns love upside down to the point where in the, in the language of the Hebrew, not necessarily the Greek, but of the Hebrew, love comes down to edification. And going through my, my, my living experience, um, hitting the age of 21, uh, graduating college, and realizing that I, I went through the experience not necessarily for something within me, but simply just because it was something you had to do for society, both home and public, that began to eat at me because I was doing something that my conscience really wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling it despite how good it may be, despite the intentions um, that parents have. You know, there's a sort of forgetfulness that parents also have that they're raising human beings that have intellects, that they need experiences to grow for themselves. And if they don't do that, then there's a sort of reaction that the, the child then begins to think negatively of themselves and then in return about the people that brought them up, whether they see them on a screen or whether they see them face to face. And so as I went through this experience and 
wanting to understand me, I turned to something um, bodybuilding that was that was that I, I believe was excellent. I felt I felt joy from exercising, and to this day I still do. And I felt I felt that exercising was something that I could claim, something that I could I could claim because I could see my body transforming. The transformation is something that I could claim because it was mine. I made that transformation occur. No one else motivated it but me. And so the love for that sort of got um, overblown and I overdid it and ended up in the hospital due to it. And it was, it was there that I, I realized that there was a conflict going on and that I was defining love uh, from a realm that really wasn't realistic. I was looking at love from the point of view of affliction and that affliction being due to ignorance and that ignorance uh, being due to a level of self-respect that I didn't have for myself because it wasn't cultivated and nor was I taught it. And so I was left with, why don't I have this, 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 this portrait of decency within myself? And as I think about the people that, that, that I grew up around, why haven't I seen it in them so that it could then be reflected into me so that I can then carry that out? So why, why, was, why was I born fractured? And why did that fracture cause me to look at myself in a negative way that I thought was positive above sitting down with myself and asking myself, what's, what's going on? And so, so uh, you know, just circling through the different uh, philosophies that are out there, I, um, the first thing I did was I wrote down my thoughts and my feelings um, into, a, into a bit of a notebook, filled it up, and the philosophy that developed led me to believe that I, I needed something more than what the people around me didn't have. And the, the more that I looked, I, I couldn't find any sort of philosophy that meshed with me because I didn't want to have my mind ruled by another conscience. And I couldn't find a religion that messed with me because I didn't want to deceive myself. In a sense, religion causes you to look away from yourself. I wanted to look at myself. I wanted to see me for what I am and for what I am not. And so I simply said, if you are real and if this is your book, show me. Sure enough, I was shown. And the injury I suffered, I began to regain uh, physical health from the diet I learned from the Bible and then also mental health from the physical health I was retaining. So I was receiving a mental and a physical diet. And that experience and the diet that I got from that experience is what I wrote in my first book entitled Perfecting and Reforming Personal Religion. And this is where I realized that the content of the Bible Although it, it, it is traditionally taken to be community knowledge, uh, built off of lore from word of mouth, generation to generation, and then that sort of lore built up philosophically through theologians, again, from generation to generation. The philosophy within the Bible is contrary to this, where the experience is inward, and where the transformation, as uh, Paul lets us know in the book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 2, is within the mind of the conversation. There is a resurrection that's supposed to take place, and this is what the illustration of, of, the, of that man Jesus, as is uh, portrayed, is to give. It's a figurative illustration of our personal devotional conversation. A resurrection or a regeneration in thought and in feeling is supposed to occur as we maintain the experience of going through and applying practically the counsels that are within the Bible. And this is supposed to and will allow us to then be human in the intended sense. Not to be human in the unintended sense, which is what I'm familiar with and which is what we are all naturally familiar with, but the intended sense, the intended sense meaning benevolence, self-sacrificing benevolence or empathy, empathy to its highest level. And this is the highest intelligence that we're supposed to meet, which the only which we can only really get to, I've, I've, only, I've found, uh, through the philosophy that is within the Bible, which is encoded um, according to the mind of the Syrian or Hebrew re authors of the Bible in illustrations, uh, parables, and allegories. Beneath those, 
there's an underlying human truth that when applied practically and then when examined will re just goes along with my currently published book justify we will re-justify or will lead to a sort of justification which in the natural or which in the original language means clearing of the devotional mind to allow us to then function as a human being in thought and in feeling for the good of the living God, for the good of the self within, and for the good of other minds. And so that that that's where my journey began and that's where I'm at now and this is the work that I'm, I'm doing publicly is to get that message of your devotional conscience matters. The Bible is a book in the book of James the very last verse, counseling us on what pure, what a pure devotional conversation is. And there's two points. The second point being to keep your your devotional conscience spotless from the world. And in the original language, that world is not the natural world that we see of trees and of squirrels and you know, falling leaves. That world is the world of religion. Our devotional conscience is supposed to stay straight on from this and into the experience within the Bible so that we, our devotional mind, may grow familiar with the living mind of the living God. Man, I I, I told you guys this 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 brother's deep. This this brother's deep. He's going to take us to places and uh, challenge some of these uh, theologies, right, brother? For sure, for <laughs> sure. And and we and I don't know if I don't know the, the liberty that that I have because I'm going on to different, you know, there, there's a sort of, there's, there's a liberty that's taken away from you when you actually want to talk Bible. Uh, for example, uh, submitting articles to, to, to journals, right? So I'm submitting, I'm submitting articles to Bible journals. And the reaction is they're surprised that there's actually Bible in them. What's wanted is Bible plus psychology or Bible plus biology. So Bible, in a sense, has become an ology, which is what we call theos. Now theos, theo, theology, theos is, is, is the entity in the Greek language called God. Ology in the language means science. Theology put together means science of God. This, this God of the science is not the God of the Bible. And so the experience within the Bible is to resurrect us from what we believe theologically. Because the Bible, if you you know, follow the narrative, never goes to theologians and actually has nothing positive to say about theologians. But in a sense, it goes to individuals um, like Amos who said, I am not a prophet, nor was I one, but was a gatherer but was a gatherer of that which fell from the tree. Again, figurative language, but the illustration is pointing to the fact that there is a mind that is tailored in that the living God tailors um, for, for the Bible to escape, again, uh, as is the last couple of verses in the book of Second Peter, the, the theology or the ology which is within religion and tied to it and once you once you get that 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 little nugget you begin to see that there's a separation you begin to see that there's a separation between the language and the context that is within the bible and the and the sort of mythological trend that that theology takes us takes us through and i don't know how far you want to get to that trend, <laughs> your listeners, <laughs> either. But <laughs> I would tell you, my brother, that um, in, in this talk show, in this setting, we we crack those things which folks okay. are seeking, right? Yes. We, we don't we don't dance around it. You know, okay. we 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 got a, a few podcasts that are coming out, or talk shows that are coming out where we dig deep because mm-hmm. we want the audience to have sound doctrine. Right, we want the audience to have a good foundation to build the study on God. And 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 that's that's literally how it should be. And so with that, I am obliged 
to confess. And um, the foundation of the Bible science, I'll start here, begins with the illustration of the man called Jesus. So the first apostles broke this down. I'm, I'm just saying this so that what I'm going to say afterwards will make sense. The first apostles broke down that body, not according to a physical individual. The way Moses broke it down, the, the language of Moses was figurative, as was um, his, his upbringing in both the Egyptian and the then Middle Eastern religion of the Midians. In that, that, that portion that Paul quotes in the book of Galatians chapter 3, 12, uh, 13, and 14, he's quoting Moses. And in that quote, Paul lets us know that what Moses was referencing was not a literal body, but Moses was referencing a specific religious philosophy. The body of that man represents a religious philosophy. Talk about the subject of redemption or salvation or of deliverance or of escape, according to the Bible. Paul lets us know that this individual has figuratively redeemed us from the curse of what Paul terms the law. This is, this, this is language that's crucial to understand according to the mind that wrote it, because that law is in reference to not simply the, the code of religion that Moses created, but it is in reference to every other code of religion that follows that practice thereafter. That body symbolizes the crucifixion of the foundation of the philosophy of Moses. And the foundation of the philosophy of Moses is personal and also, I don't know what you want to call it, there's many definitions of it, but spiritual, righteousness, uh, beauty, piety, um, favor, through baptisms, rites, um, theological theories, commandments, feast days, holidays, holy days, and so on, where we see this transitioning. For example, we see in the book of Acts how it is written, the disciples found it just to break bread on the first day of the week, and this became a tradition. When we see little things like that happening, it's little things like this that that crucified body represents as being an annihilated action. The, the source of inculcating and then incorporating into the devotion a rite, a baptism, a ritual, anything that has to do um, with a deed or an act. Side note, also remember in the book of Judah, if we're going to think about what's going on with um, that theory of the second coming of Christ, taken from the book of Enoch, the book of Jude quotes, and then the Lord comes with the saints to execute judgments on all for their deeds and acts. In right context of language, that has to be understood because the same deeds and acts that are going to be executed on by a judgment, they're the same deeds and acts that this crucified body represents. This crucified body represents a philosophy where you, through your belief of obtaining presence and mindfulness and subservience, whether it's yourself or to others, to a divine eye is certified and is viable through your handling of religious theories uh, passed down by theologians that are handwritten. As Paul says in the book of Ephesians 2 and verse 15, this is what has been abolished. The then resurrection of the very same body is a figurative illustration representing a devotional conversation separated from what has been annihilated or crucified. Being resurrected, that body is free. This freedom, Paul calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56, and in Romans chapter 6, the definition of sin. Sin in the Bible is not what sin is theologically and is not what sin is naturally. For example, sin naturally is homosexuality, Sin is overeating. Sin is everything that is physical and that is negatively secular. This is not how the Bible defines sin. The Bible defines sin as a course of devotional action that separates your devotional mind and your conversation's conscience from the direct philosophy 
and from the living God's religious character, whatever intervenes with that is the definition of sin. 1 Corinthians 15 and 56 says that, as Paul phrases it, the law is the strength of sin. Plain, plain, that this caption and this definition of the law, which in I'm, I'm summarizing, but in the, in the general language, what Paul is referencing is the general law of rites, baptisms, and traditions, um, theories, and established feast days and holy days that are handwritten by priests and by ministers. To be followed, this is the definition of sin. Why? That resurrected body gives us the answer. The conversation is to be free from it and being free from how the Bible defines sin. Now the conversation can pursue sinlessness or how the Bible defines godlessness, which is the conversation mentally and inwardly focusing its mind on its experience to practically apply the words within the Bible for an experience that is living and that is benefiting the human body. This is why the man said in John 3 and verse 6, that which is of the spirit is spirit. We want to talk about creation. This is what the foundation of the Bible's philosophy is in the book of Luke. Very last chapter, verse 24, appearing. He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. If that which is born of the spirit is spirit and the spirit does not have flesh and bones, and if in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lets us know from 22 to 24 that the spirit of our mind, the spirit of our mind is what is to be renewed, then the separation is very clear. Our personal devotional conversation is to resurrect, and this is what he says in, again in Galatians chapter 4, the man's doctrine came to redeem us from the law that we may be adopted as sons. This adoption and this redemption, this redemption is a redemption of mind and of devotional conscience. It is, a, it is a redemption of intellect, devotionally and spiritually. If we are continuing to follow the set script that is theologically framed, we are entertaining what the Bible defines as sin. This is sin to the, to the Bible's definition. What is theologically framed, for an example, that very first word, so I'm, I'm transitioning I'm transitioning from the Bible's definition, and now I'm going into the theological framework of the Christian religion. Okay. The very first word in the book, sorry, sentence in the book of John, John 1, uh, 1, in the beginning was the word. I'll just stop there. If you're not looking at this from a Bible perspective, but if you're in seminary, or if you're a lay sitting in church, this word the word, the phrase, the word is going, to, is going to be fit into the context of the minds that wrote it. So this word actually means in the, in the original Greek language, logos. The author of the book of John makes an assumption because there is no birth story as is in Luke and, and Matthew in the book of Mark and in, book of, in the book of John. There's an assumption made by the author of the book of John that the Logos became flesh. In the French Bible, for example, if you look into the French Bible, that word, that phrase, the word, it means the speech. And you can look at this from two perspectives. You can look at it from the perspective of the Bible, or you can look at it from the perspective of, the, um, of Greek and Roman theological mythology, which is what these four Gospels are framed around on the first hand. The author of the book of John makes an assumption that the Logos became flesh. Doesn't tell you how, doesn't tell you why. The assumption is there based on the culture of the time. The word Logos is a term established by a philosopher, and it means reason, it means knowledge, and it means the essence of bringing into being. It means what is spoken to be is. And this, in the sense of the Greek term, manipulates the Hebrew perspective in a completely different way. Because when you're seeing it this way, you're seeing that the logos, that logos, 
that aspect of being coming into what is a human being, it now frames the narrative that gives this character, the central figure, its divine credibility. This is the assumption made for the character within those four books of his um, appearance before creation was and um, as creation after is because within him, in the Greek term, is the Logos. And in the Logos, the Logos was existent prior. Now, the Logos has a figure. The figure of the Logos in the Greek religion is Zeus, which is, which is very interesting because in the Greek, the word Jesus breaks down into, into, a, into a, a word where in English it translates to the J-E, cut that off, put a you know, slash there, and then on the other side is the S-U-S. The S-U-S is easy because the S-U-S in the Greek means Zeus. The J-E is easy because in the Greek it means praise. Praise Zeus. The entire package of, again, on the theological plane of view, Looking at the, these four Gospels, it is in dedication to the Logos, termed in the Greek religion, Zeus. This individual Jesus is, in a sense, the son of Zeus. Zeus is the god of cosmic law. This is what makes the Logos so, 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 so real uh, in, in Greek mythology. Zeus is in, is in control of cosmic law. Logos is cosmic law, if you look at the definition of it. This is what makes the Logos a key in the beginning, as it says in the next two, three, four verses, that there was nothing that could be made without the Logos because the Logos is the essence of creation in Greek mythology. So here you have a character. The assumption is made based on, and I say the culture because you find in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas working, and then the, 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 the priests of that time in their language and, and in their, their perception, they began to cry out that the gods had come down to us in the likeness of men. And they began to call Paul Mercurius, and they began to call Barnabas Jupiter. When we're reading these things, we're not reading them theologically, and we're not reading them um, in the sense of the Bible. We're reading them as stories and as believable stories. We're reading them in the context that they were actually meant to be read in. The authors are Roman Jewish authors. The trend is a new trend of a Roman Jewish hero. The authors are very keen and very adept to the Greek religion and to the Greek philosophy because this is, at this time, the Greek religion and the Greek language. The Greek language, I should more say, the Greek language is as what English is today. English is international. Go anywhere and you can't speak English, and they'll look at you like, what are you doing? You know, you go anywhere back then and you can't speak Greek, they'll look at you like, what are you doing? And especially for priests. This is the manipulation of a, a character. And keep in mind, underneath all of these, these, these allegories, there is a very real man. And this, in my studies and in my examinations, is what I have uncovered. Because it's easy to go to seminars where you can hear anybody tell you that this historical record of a figure named Jesus is not real and there is no proof of a historical record of him. It's easy to find this anywhere. But I have yet to find anyone, while concluding the same thing, find proof of the actual human being. And this is where my writings... Um, the philosophy that is within the Bible and the philosophy that is that the man actually says, because there's truth and error in these four Gospels. And when you read them with the mind uh, for the Bible and then also, you know, being in tuned to the time and to the culture and to the theology back then, which is now still current, and as it's taken off from that Greek time, Greek religion to the Roman religion, you can see the transition, and then you can see where Bible does not meet um, modern or ancient Christianity. And this is what, when you get past John and the book of Acts, even in the book of Acts, this is what the first apostles tried to do. Now, the Bible isn't a book about Christianity, how to make Christianity right. The Bible is about how to make 
how to correct Christianity. It's not how to, how to make Christianity the thing. It's about how to correct it so that it can fit the scheme and the narrative of the Bible. This is what Paul spent all of his epistles on. If you read them in the con in, 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 in right context, this is what all of, of Peter wrote about. These, these guys, they were trying to correct Greek and Roman Jewish ministers on the philosophy that they were using to explain the doctrine that they were teaching. And they didn't listen. And so what we have today is, is just something absolutely contrary to the fact. And the fact of being, as what Moses clearly told us, Isaiah clearly told us, the book of Micah chapter 5 clearly tells us, a revolutionary from within the Jewish religion was at a point in time going to give the direct words within the scriptures, pointing to the, to the direct point of those scriptures for the human being in relation to themselves and, and in relation to the living God. This individual came onto the scene and preached and gave that real, that real philosophy, which Paul gives in the book of Romans and in uh, Corinthians and Titus, to a point, and also in the book of Galatians, that the devotional conversation is not supposed to rely on what can be seen, what can be felt. It is supposed to rely on an intelligent faith that works by the knowledge that it gains through experiencing the love within the scriptures. It is the experience of this love that actually makes us care, not simply for the fact that we are a creation and that we have a creator, but knowing this is in turn supposed to help us realize that we need to love and care for our own self. This realization is to then help us to realize that there are other minds on this planet that do not know to love and care for themselves, and we to our intellect and our continuing intellect to develop have to get them to that stage to inspire them to have an emerging vision of who they are and who they and of who they see themselves to be positively and to reach it the book of luke 1 through 5 is a confession that what is written of this essential figure called jesus christ has absolutely nothing to do with the actual individual and with the actual individual's philosophy the way that these manuscripts were written was that there were, there's one manuscript, there's another manuscript, there's another manuscript, manuscript 25, manuscript 100, manuscript 255, and the authors are putting these manuscripts one on top of the other. For example, in the book of John, if you, if you look at the manuscripts of them, the, author, the authors have crossed out certain names and replaced certain names and have done different things all throughout these things to fit a specific narrative. Even though, you know, there's there's still an underlying theme of a separation between what, what is intended for the Bible and what is intended theologically, and the resurrection that is needed from what is from theologically, which we are ingrained with naturally, Paul says again in Romans 7, that is the resurrection that is to liberate our minds to be free in how we honor the living God faithfully and how we honor ourselves and one another. You know, my brother, you touched on a lot of points there. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of things that you just explained to the audience here. Sure. And I just, I, and, and you know, I appreciate you digging in and, and providing the reference, right? Because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we, we miss the context of it, right? Sure. We just sure. read it as words on paper. And that's yeah. not how the Bible is supposed to be taken in. Not but I want to do something, my brother. I want to go back a little bit because you said in John 1, no, in the, in the beginning, and, and I definitely <clears throat> love this verse right here because a lot of people do take this out of context and forget that it has anything to do with the Greek meaning of, of logos. And, you know, in, in the beginning was the word, right? Yep. But <clears throat> let's think about what it was in the beginning. The, the, the beginning was a timestamp. The word was his divineness, his reason, his mind, the wisdom, 
the 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 essence of the of God. And that's the flip. Wow. That's expand, the, expand on that, my brother. Go ahead, go ahead, expand. I mean, man, if if I really had to, the entire book of if I really had to go through the entire like that very first book of Genesis, man. And then going into the second book of Genesis. That book of Genesis, um, it, it's in two contexts. The, the way I like to explain it is I like to, whenever I get asked about the book of Genesis, I like to ask who wrote the book of Genesis? The answer is sometimes, I don't know. And then the other answer is Moses. Oh, so I'm like, okay, so if Moses wrote it, was Moses there when God created the heavens and the earth? And then silence. So then I go, if Moses wasn't there when God created the heavens and the earth, yet he's writing this, what is the context in which this chapter is written? Silence. So then I'm, I'm, I, I then direct him to, to the last book of the Bible. In what context is the last book of the Bible written in? And that's easy. The context isn't literal. Nothing within that context is literal because the author gives us clues to the fact that it's not literal. The first book of the Bible should be treated the exact same way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John should be treated the exact same way. That first book of the Bible, scrolling down to where you see, let us make man in our own image. This, 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 is, a, this is a key phrase in the, in the Hebrew language because this word image and likeness, it has absolutely nothing to do with a biological copy. And it has absolutely nothing to do with a mirror as if I can see myself in a mirror. The definition of following the script that is within the Bible, tracking the script, of, of course, I, this isn't the platform to go through all of the, I don't have the time, I'm just I'm giving a brief. The script within the Bible of the definition of God is philosophy. The definition of God, point one, is strength. The definition of God, point two, God equals strength, strength equals wisdom and knowledge. You track this in the Psalms and in the book of Ecclesiastes and in the book of the Proverbs. There are two ways to look at the book of Genesis. The first way, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The theological way, that word God in the Hebrew language translates to El. E-L. That's right. That word El is synonymous with the God El who is not a real being. L does not exist. L is a is a character, is a mythological character. As much of a mythological character as is Zeus. The theological framework of that first chapter is that God, L, created everything. If you're going to look at it from the Bible point of view, the Bible point of view is not that L created it. That's the theological framework. The, the, the right or the correct way of the authors was that we were supposed to be pointed to the fact, if we're following the way that the Bible transitions to the word God, is that wisdom in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And this changes and flips everything. Because as much as we want to believe or take that record to be literal, the authors did not intend it to be taken literally. It was intended to be taken uh, devotionally or science-based, not science physically, science mentally, to reveal a, a, a wisdom about the natural world. And not primarily. The wisdom is primarily devotional because wisdom does not have a body. Wisdom is words. And this is where your point comes in. And this is where the manipulation of, of your point 
the logos, I, as we spoke about earlier, this is where that manip manipulation comes in. Because in the beginning, yes, wisdom created everything. But the mythological point of view overshadows the actual point of view. The wisdom that created everything is the logos. So the logos is an essence of being that creates as it is spoken. On the flip side, there is a code that was spoken. This is, may sound, this is where the trip between Bible and in, in, in the theological framework comes in. There is a, a code in our atmosphere that when everything took place, that code, as was seen a couple years ago, they broke down scientists, the atom, the atom, the atom, the, the, the general framework of the atom is, is sound waves. A wisdom literally naturally created and encoded via sound what we now see and know as creation. That's, that's not enough. The narrative within the Bible isn't necessarily physical, it's devotional from beginning to end. The controversy is devotion. In the beginning, the, the, the book of Genesis, the first chapter and the second chapter and the third chapter is about the devotional controversy between right Bible and wrong Bible. The wisdom that was created. There was a contrary wisdom that was given to us, that was given to humanity, a contrary wisdom. And following the illustration from verse 1 all the way down, this contrary wisdom is the primary re religion and the primary philosophy given to quote-unquote man. Man in the Bible does not mean human being. In the general sense of the language, man means minister. First chapter of the book of Genesis is about ministers and the birth of the minister theologically and the birth of the foundational principles of the theological minister. The foundation of the principles of the theological minister is God's image. What is God's image? Because there is no creation seen of man in the first chapter. So then there's a general assumption that this first chapter is then further expounded upon in the second chapter. But that's not true. It's not true. Because in the second chapter, there is a scene of creation that is contrary to the creation that is in the first chapter. The image of God is not physical, as is, you know, whatever we believe. The image of God depends upon the God that we are looking at in the first chapter, which is contrary to the God that we are looking at in the second chapter. In the first chapter, very first verse, it says God created the heavens and the earth. When you get to the second chapter, you see that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, all of a sudden we're introduced to two entities. Why didn't the first chapter mention the Lord God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning? Why in the second chapter are we getting to the fact that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth? Point being is that there are two, as the Bible, as we should look at it from the Bible's perspective, there are two devotional philosophies, one in the first chapter, the second in the second chapter. The image of God follows the process of, and God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. This is the image of God. The image isn't physical. If you can understand the image, the image is philosophical. The image of God is a process where what is said is done by what or who ever hears it. Putting it in modern or, or just plain language, the image of God is a philosophy of religious law. Of religious law implemented and executed to have done within the door of it, what the speaker is saying. This is not the image of God in chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're taken through a process of resurrection. The individual in chapter 2 is actually, we're, we're given an illustration of creation to where a breath is breathed into this individual, raising them up. The illustration again, um, dust and all of this, 
the language of the context. The illustration is pointing to a resurrection, the same resurrection that I mentioned earlier, which is figuratively alluded to by the man Jesus. It's the same resurrection that happened to that person in the second chapter of the book of Genesis. These two philosophies, one called God, the other called Lord God. I'm just keeping it simple. These are two general philosophies, and these chapters are speaking about how, just as with the Logos, what was being was said. Again, the key, the definition of, of Logos means cosmic law. Cosmic law. In a sense, cosmic law creates physicality. There is nothing divine about cosmic law. Cosmic law creates nature. Cosmic law being transferred means cosmic law being implemented. Cosmic law being implemented means, as Paul says in the very last verse of Galatians chapter 2, if the man was crucified, and if righteousness come by the law, then the man was crucified in vain. Why would Paul say that? You ask, why would Paul say that? Paul would say that because there is a contradiction with the Bible to where there is justness through law. Law by mind to mind. To the Bible, this is false. This is the contrary religious philosophy in the first chapter of the book of Genesis that has created the fields and the stars and the moon and the sun and everything associated with it. These, these images, they're not literal in the context of the Bible is what I'm saying. Context of the Bible is philosophical. The first religious philosophy given to man, which is what we know, which is what we are supposed to resurrect from, is a philosophy telling you what to do, what to feel, how to feel, and how to do it, based upon the conscience of another mind. This is religion. The first chapter of the book of Genesis, that very first line, religion created the heavens and the earth. Second chapter you now have another philosophy doing something to an individual that was created out of that. He's regenerating them. He's not only regenerating them, he's separating them and putting them into a place that is safe. This, these two chapters are the controversy that that crucified body illustrates and that the risen crucified body illustrates. The entire narrative points not to the Logos, not to the theological framework. It points to the original wisdom in the beginning that created. And again, I don't have, you know, there's a lot to that. But the aspect of creation is what the living God is about. Not creation as is in the first chapter, as is in the image. Let us create man in the likeness of our image. It is in the second chapter that the illustration of what we are to be devotionally and inwardly, that's the illustration. That first, that first, that second is the resurrection from the first. Second chapter, Adam taken from the first. If you go through and you look at the language and, and, and what that first chapter is bringing out, this individual from the second chapter was created in the image of God, but God somehow took that individual and renewed the image, breathed life into that individual. And so a new image took place, and then so went on the test for that new image. That first book of Genesis, you know, the, the uh, philosophy and theology manipulates, manipulates much through its Greek and Roman tradition when, when you just stay focused on Bible and when you just look at Bible, you, you then see the benefit of the fact of the Bible's analogy of, of a right wisdom being implemented above a contrary wisdom originally given to the mind of ministers to saturate it. The mind of ministers saturating into this original framework, quote-unquote, called God is a contrary wisdom to what is devotionally healthy for the conversation's conscience. We are to resurrect um, from 
that unhealthy, contrary wisdom and to live, as Paul says again, Romans 12 and verse 2, transformed in mind by learning of and doing and by exercising the living will and wisdom of the living God. Yeah, my brother. Yeah. No, you, you know what? You, <clears throat> brother Linwood, you, you're hitting on all kinds of topics and points today. And and I wish this 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 talk show was like, you know, four hours long. <laughs> I'm saying the same thing. <laughs> but but my brother, we have we have 10 to 15 minutes left here. And I want to get your insight on a couple of things. And, and just real quick, my brother, yep. because <clears throat> you talked about religion. You yeah. talked about theology. You talked about logos, the, the Greek, the Greek word. <clears throat> but my brother, between Malachi and Matthew, Mm-hmm. It was called the silent period. It was like 400 years where God didn't speak. Yep. So if I look at that period and we look, excuse me, back in the Old Testament, Sadducees and Pharisees were not mentioned in the Old Testament. You had the major and minor prophets, right? Yep. But as we enter the New Testament, they're all over the place. Yep. Can you, can you, can you tell us what, what your thoughts are and, and, uh, and how that relates back? To, re- to the religion you talked about? Well, it, it, it wasn't a silent period at all. It was, a, it, was, it was such a loud period, it just couldn't be put in. And it was, allowed, it, was, it was so such a loud period that it was so conflicting with the philosophy that is within the Bible because throughout that whole period, it was a period of the Maccabean family and the sorts of uh, king priests that were supposed to to be, and you gotta you you have you just have to know the culture, right? So you go to the culture, and for example, in the book of Luke, it talks about the the time of the period of taxing, uh, the time of the period of taxing by 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 the Caesar Augustus. At this point in time, in the book of Acts, we're told that there was an individual uh, called Judas, who at this same period in time of the taxing created a revolt, and this same um, individual had many killed along with himself through the revolt. What's going on at this point in time is what is called the Messianic movement. There were individuals, um, and, and the actual man who we falsely call Jesus Christ knew this, knew that this, knew this because this was his time period. When, for example, again, it says that the child went down to Jerusalem and then the parents found him in the temple. This feast of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin used this feast to be as a sacrifice, a sacrificial system because they, they, each feast was a custom where they sacrificed who they perceived to be the Messiah. Again, that's a whole other subject to get into, but their perception of the Messiah was that, as it says in John 11, that this individual is better for that one die for the nation and then that the whole nation not perish. To them, the, sacrifice, the sacrificing of the Messiah was that the nation would be blessed and that it would overpower or that it would then be the world power that it once, uh, once was. And so you have the Sanhedrin, the theologians that have a messianic perception of who they see the Messiah to be. And then you have the, the priesthood seeing a perception of who they see the Messiah to be. And then you have the lower class of who they see the perception of the Messiah to be. And this period uh, between Malachi and Matthew is a period of, of messianic movement. And it's, it's, it's a period where there were individuals, so long as they had any clout with any kind of descendancy from, from David, the movement began and it was that this was that Messiah. And so you go through that history and you're seeing king priests sitting on the throne of Israel and Judah claiming to be that Messiah. And so then you have a character, you have many characters. Judas, for example, in that same period that Luke says that the the individual called Jesus was born, the man is growing up and he's seeing, despite what we believe to be clean pastures and sheep all over the place and and he just walking around the setting wasn't wasn't that way literally the literal setting was chaotic the literal setting was messianic the messianic movement of 
there is going to be somebody to overthrow the priesthood. But at the same time, there is going to be somebody to justify the priesthood. This, in a sense, works. You can It, it, it connects with creation because the, the God of the Jews, who they termed El, is the individual that John um, 3, 6, that which is of the flesh is of the flesh, that which is of the spirit is of the spirit. There's a division there. The language flesh doesn't actually mean flesh. Um, flesh means devotional conversation. Spirit doesn't actually mean spirit. Spirit means mind. The, the point that the man was trying to make was that what is for the devotional conversation will be applied to by the devotional conversation. What is for the mind will be applied to by the mind. The cutoff there is for creation. How are you going to be created? Will L, L stipulations create you, whose stipulations are baptisms, rites, this, that, and the other? How can I be born again when I am an old man? Or will it be through the mind? Will it be through you digesting and then working out that principle to daily come by something new to learn and to exercise for knowledge of the living God's uh, religious character? That period was not the period um, to know the philosophy within the Bible. That period was a period of knowing the philosophy of, of, of theology, and especially in the Greek Jewish sense, to where they expected a king priest, because it says in the book of Zechariah, a king priest will rule. And in the book of um, Jeremiah, again, the king priest, which absolutely conflicts with the visions of Daniel and of Moses and of Isaiah for this individual. There were two perceptions of the Messiah, and in this period of time, they were trying to work it out, and there was a conflict, which, you know, when you, when you think about the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can understand why, uh, why they would say it is better that one be sacrificed uh, for, the, for the nation and for the people than that the nation does not suffer. One of the, the intentions behind these, these, these pieces of writings were to alleviate the Sanhedrin from the movement that was causing disturbance with the Roman government. The more that the Messianic movement continued, the more that they saw a sort of devastation happening to them. So it's no different than what we see today, for example, um, where it is... Um, they're creating a narrative, for example, you have Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you have uh, specific highlighted people in the music industry where it is pro-intel, um, a pro-intel operative, uh, a pro-intelligence operation to where they're creating a messiah to keep the riots down, to keep the people dumb, to keep everything still. They're creating messiahs to the point where they can then keep the movement to where they can regulate it themselves. That is one point of why these, these writings matter in the context of why they matter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because they're written not factually, they're written not to be taken factually. They're written mythologically to promote a hero, as is uh, the custom in the, in, in the Roman and Greek religion. But they're also written and cultivated for the Sanhedrin to take and to alleviate pressure away from them so that they can then get to an objective that they, they have concocted about their religion and then their goal to overpower the then world Roman powerful religion. So a lot of culture in a lot of, of time period, time frame, it really goes into understanding what these, these four writings are supposed to be theologically, because again, there's a separate, there's Bible and then there's the, theology. Can go theologically um, all day, but we don't hear Bible. I have never heard Bible. I have yet to hear Bible. And so when I'm writing, I'm writing Bible, and you know, in my head, it's just like I'm going through something that I need the, the, the wisdom within the Bible, and the wisdom within the Bible is separating the wisdom that is within the, the, the train with the quote-unquote expert, which is what we're fed. And so if I'm going through a struggle and the Bible is giving me and taking me through something that is, that's helping me, despite how painful it may feel in, in, inwardly, you know, six weeks from then, my mind is alleviated and I'm more healthy than there are many other people that can benefit from the philosophy that is within the Bible. And so that's, that's, 
that's my 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 frame of mind when I when I put anything out there publicly is that the Bible teaches resurrection and resurrection from the theological mythology that has been now hidden and that we're taking um, we're taking and we're replacing it with an experience that is encoded within the Bible, although it must be dug for, as Ezekiel was told in chapter eight. Though we dig, we will find, and what we find, as the you know, the proverb says, he that tilleth his ground shall have plenty of bread. That is the sustenance and the sustenance that we need through digging and through exercising to have our devotional body live in a way where we're not controlling it. We don't think about the synapses in our brain allowing us to, to be able to process what we're thinking about right now. We're not controlling the blood flowing through our veins. This is what it means by take no thought for your life. That word life in the actual language doesn't mean life literal. It means life conversationally, life devotionally. As our natural body is, and our natural body functions without our thought, so too our devotional consciousness is to function without thought, and that can only happen as the light of the eye is then centered within the body of the conscience. And that's another phrase. That's what that means. The light of the body is the eye. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, that the eye is representative of the eye of understanding. Our eye of understanding is to feed the body of our devotional intellect so that we are resurrecting from false thoughts and false feelings uh, religiously, spiritually, and devotionally to the experience that we are supposed to have as human beings specifically created uh, by our creator for us. All right, my brother, I'll tell you, that is the hour my brother no doubt no doubt it went fast it did man i wish it could have been just longer oh i know me too me too my brother you know i with the the, the, the i guarantee you we're going to get a lot of comments on this on this particular uh this particular interview i guarantee you there's a lot of comments coming your way my brother but it's all good i hope so i hope so <laughs> it's get all mine, good. get the wheels turning you know yeah yeah because you know the, the 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 thing is is like you're saying you got you gotta where's the bible in all this all this stuff is religion all you know going to this four walls doing things at certain times sunday wednesday whatever you do right it's but you got to break away from that yeah you got to break away from that and 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 my brother say you know people want to find you right what what can you give the audience you know maybe different websites or how, how can they locate you um all you got to do, put me up in Bing, put me up in Google, just type my name, Linwood Jackson Jr., L-I-N, though, L-I-N-W-O-O-D, Linwood Jackson Jr., type that in Google or Bing, and I'll be right there. My websites will be there. Um, or you can go to linwoodjacksonjr.com. That's my main website. Um, everything there is uploaded. You'll be right there in my sphere that I, you know, take the Bible and just learn how to live it and how to give it in a way to, to minds that are either curious or needing alleviation. You the man, my brother. You the man. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And remember to, to research, like you said, go to Bing, look for Linwood Jackson, Linwood Jackson, L-I-N-W-O-O-D Jackson. He's the man. And, and get his material and let's circulate it. And let's start the conversation. And Linwood, my brother, we gotta have you on for, for interview number two. What do you think? Oh, not even a question. I'm ready for it. All right. right. I, mean, I think we have some time. Right? <laughs> 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 right, right that's right, that's right. <laughs> we gotta have you on for, for a second interview. So all the audience out there, stay, stay tuned. Keep your eyes out. Get with Linwood Jackson. Download some of his material and let's start the conversation. You have anything else for, for our audience before we close out, my brother? Yeah, for sure. Empathy, you know, exercise empathy. The highest intelligence that we can have as human beings is, is first off, exercise empathy. And then the next route up from that is self-sacrificing benevolence. Experiment with um, empathy, experiment with um, self-sacrificing benevolence and Get to that point where the experience is based off the understanding you gain from that experience for yourself. You can take that internally and then you can register that. And whatever you're going through, whatever you're learning, pick up 
the Bible anywhere that you open it, that will be for you and that will be for your experience. Take that and add your experience to what you're going to to, to then read and then just multiply and re, re, recycle that experience. Exercising empathy, recycling, self-sacrificing, benevolence, for knowledge, not simply just as a devotional being, um, but also as a human being, because that's where the Bible is. The Bible, the Creator created us physically and mentally, mentally first, physically second. We're only reformed devotionally first, so long as our devotional mind can educate the mind within our natural body. There it is. My brother, and, and we appreciate you so much. And we thank, thank all you. the audience out there. And we can't wait for interview number two, my brother. I can't either. So to all the listeners out there, stay tuned. Download Linwood Jackson. Look for him on Bing and Google. Check out all his books and all his material. And we'll be looking for a second interview coming soon. Stay blessed. Remember, you have the power.